Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that your mercy is new today. Would you let the, the grace and the goodness of the gospel, which is apparent and clear in Christ Jesus, and yet we obscure it with our own fear and sinfulness, with our own blindness, with our own rebellion, would you break in by your spirit so that we can hear this morning? And I pray especially for those with, with tender consciences, people who are quick um, to maybe beat themselves up. Lord, would you help them to hear the good news of the gospel this morning that uh, they, they don't need to beat themselves up. They can receive freely the mercy and grace of God here today. And Lord, for those who maybe have a hard conscience here this morning, who might hear uh, words of encouragement when they actually probably need to hear a word that leads them back to you and not away, not away from you in rebellion. Lord, would you, would you humble them, Lord? Confirm those who need to be confirmed. Rebuke those who need to be rebuked. We know that this can't happen, God, without the mercy of the Spirit. It cannot happen fundamentally and fully in our own strength. It can't not, cannot happen because of words of wisdom or clarity of speech, it is by your power alone that we can hear and believe and trust the gospel for each of us here individually this morning. And so, God, do that, each, each of our hearts this morning, and unite our hearts together in love, we pray. Make this a church um, that is humble more and more today than we were yesterday so that we can proclaim your goodness and your glory and welcome more and more people into the household of God. Lord, be with us as we open your scriptures. We, we pray. We need you here present with us. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. I encourage you, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and we'll just be in the first part of Romans chapter 8 this morning. So a lot of you know, a lot of you know, even though I was here last Sunday, it was for a brief respite, and then we flew. We flew again, and it was... It was uh, I'm thankful for the people that I got to see, but I'm also very thankful to be home. And as I was landing or else flying into West Virginia, one of the things that you notice when you're flying a little bit is how different states are from above. And West Virginia is all woods. It's all mountains. It's, it's actually quite incredible. Uh, even, even over various other states with Appalachia, it is completely green here in this state. And there's tiny little spaces or else uh, lines for power lines to go across our, our state to other states to power those states with our electricity produced at our power plants. Anyway, that's, that's the idea I have in my head is a mountain or else um, our great and beautiful state. And Romans chapter 8 is, it is fundamentally, it is a mountaintop. Perhaps the mountaintop of all of Paul's theology, but certainly the pinnacle of Romans, this letter to the Romans, which is Paul's biggest and perhaps most influential letter. And Romans chapter 8 is right at the tip top. Now, today is, it's a very theological sermon. So hopefully that does not mean uh, a long or arduous sermon, but it is, it is very theologically rich. And so I encourage you to stay with me. I probably spent too much time 
in various uh, other translations in the Greek this week. Uh, that's okay. Hopefully I've come up on the other side and I don't drown you in that, in that study this morning. So this morning we are going to look at, this is the first of three lectionary readings in Romans chapter 8 over the next three weeks. This morning we're going to look at the Spirit and the way the Spirit or the Holy Spirit relates to the law of God. So we're going to look at the Spirit and the law this morning. Next Sunday, and it's, these are still theological, but we're going to be turning the corner so this morning we're laying a foundation in a lot of ways that the rest of Romans chapter 8 builds upon. And so next Sunday we'll look at the spirit of adoption and suffering. Those seem to be, those seem to be, um, they don't go together like the spirit and the law. They don't seem like, they seem contrasting, but all these things actually are wedded together. And then two Sundays we will look at the spirit who intercedes or else he prays for us. He helps us. And so that's the next three weeks. This is, this is, to use another, to mix metaphors here, this is a crescendo in a great orchestra. So there's little refrains that have been going on throughout this entire letter. And this is the biggest moment. This is the part that moves you to tears if you're so inclined uh, with good music. And so that's what we're going to focus on this morning. And to, to, totally overdo the mountaintop analogy trust me as deep as we might go we are really only strip mining the top of the mountain like we can only go so deep we're gonna we're gonna try to get as deep as we can um, but I want you to actually hear what I'm saying this morning and not take forever um, in drilling so uh, three more points three more points as we begin um, as we dig into the first part of chapter uh, chapter 8. The first point, and this is again building on the mountaintop metaphor, this reading is one of our New Testament readings, or at least part of this reading, is one of our New Testament readings on Trinity Sunday. On Trinity Sunday. And so it's a reading that highlights the complexity and the unity, so the diversity of the persons of God and the unity and the simplicity of God. Are you confused yet? It's, it's a hard text. There's a lot going on here in this text. So uh, in chapter 8 alone, Paul uses the word spirit or pneuma 22 times. 22 times in my count. And at least 20 of those or 19 refer to the third person of the Holy Trinity, the Holy Spirit. So in comparison to the rest of the letter, the whole, all the other 15 chapters of this really long letter mention the spirit 10 times. So the spirit is very much the center or the, the, the main point, especially at the beginning of Romans chapter 8. So we're going to look at the spirit. Look with me at verse 9. Paul says, the spirit, or as he says later at the end of our reading in verse 16, the spirit himself. So he's talking about the person of the spirit. What does he do? He also says the spirit of God or else the Spirit of God the Father. He manifests the presence of God the Father here on earth. And he also says in the same verse, in verse 9, the Spirit of Christ. And so he's the Spirit. He's the Spirit of God the Father. He's the Spirit of Christ. And so we see this Trinitarian shape taking form even with the focus on the Spirit. And so that's the first thing I want to note before we dig in. The second thing I want to note before we dig in, look with me at verse 7. The first verse which uh, Curtis read for us this morning. 
it doesn't mention the Spirit. So this verse doesn't mention the Spirit, but only one time in the verses that we are focusing on this morning, it mentions God's law. God's law, the law of God. It's one time in our reading. It's five times. Law is mentioned five times in Romans chapter 8 as a whole, all at the beginning of the chapter. And this is coming off the tail end of Romans chapter 7, which we did not preach last week because we had a wonderful uh, guest sermon last Sunday. We were focusing in Matthew's gospel. But chapter 7 of Romans mentions law 27 times. And so if you think about Romans, think about Starting in Romans chapter 2, this discussion about what the law of God is and what is doing and what is continuing to do in Christ. It starts in Romans chapter 2 and it crescendos to Romans chapter 7. And at the same time, the spirit is hinted at throughout this letter, but it crescendos in Romans chapter 8. So law and spirit are right next to each other in this letter. And so uh, if, if there's a crescendo and the spirit and the law, there's a, there's a complexity of how these two different refrains go together in Romans chapter 8. And so that's what we're going to focus on. Skipping ahead two chapters to Romans chapter 10 and verse 4. And this hints at the way that I interpret this text, Romans chapter 10 and verse 4, for Christ, Paul says, is the end, or else he is the completion, he's the goal. He just said earlier in Romans chapter 10 that we're, we're running the race, at, uh, actually Romans chapter 9, we're running as, as if we're going to an end or a goal. And so he says here in Romans chapter 10 verse 4, for Christ is the end, or the telos, he's the goal, the completion of, of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And so the law is summed up in Christ. It's fulfilled in Christ. He is the aim. And so that's what we're going to unpack a little bit here this morning. And the third point, and I'm trying to summarize a lot of study in three quick little points so that I don't kill you with detail throughout the sermon. Romans chapter 8 and verse 7 again God's law, this phrase that's only once in our reading, if all of this crescendo of all of this big theology wasn't enough, Paul uses the word law or namas in at least three different ways in these two chapters, okay? So I, I don't want to confuse you but it's really helpful for understanding what Paul is saying. There's three different ways. Look with me at verse 7. The first usage of this word law in Romans chapter 7 and chapter 8 is this, God's law. So this is what we think about when we hear the word law. God's law or else the law of the Old Testament, the law of God or the Mosaic law. And so in chapter 7, Paul says, all, he uses a couple of other words. He calls this the written code. So God's law is the written code or else the commandments or the rules. These are all words pointing to the written down testimony of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. So that's the first usage. Now look with me at verse 2 of chapter 8. Verse 2, chapter 8. For here's the second use of the word law in Romans chapter 8. For two. The law of the spirit of life. This is different than God's law. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from, here's the third, 
the law of sin and death. So there's multiple different ways of speaking about the law. It's, it's, I, I think it's pretty clear right here in this verse, but they're all coming together. And the Spirit has something to do, that, do with that. That's what we're going to be focusing on here this morning. Verse 3, for God has done what the law. So here's the, the first, God's law, the Mosaic law. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Verse 4, in order that, that the righteous requirement of the law, so there's God's law, the law of Moses, the righteous requirement of the law, the Old Testament, might be fulfilled in us, in you and me, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So there's three different usages of law. In, in, this, in this text, and it's helpful to understand, there's the law of the spirit of life, there is the law of sin and death, and then there's the Mosaic law, or else the Old Testament, okay? This is, this is all set up, okay? This is all set up. Look with me at Romans chapter 7 and verse 6. This is what Romans chapter 8 is really unpacking. But now we are released from the law, or else the Mosaic law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So there's distinctions being made. There's distinctions and there's a continuity at the same time. Are you still with me? All right, there's introduction. There's introduction. Let's get going. Let's lay some foundations here this morning. Romans chapter 8 has been important. It's been important throughout the history of the church. And for me specifically, it's a very encouraging chapter. So Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 starts with this pretty famous verse. We all probably know it if we've been in the church, certainly the evangelical church for a little while. There is now, right now, Therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a pretty awesome gospel statement, right at the beginning. And at the end of this letter, you guys are familiar with Paul's rhetorical flourish. Nothing in heaven or earth, anything in all creation can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And so from first to last, this is a very encouraging chapter. There's a reason why we slow down in our lectionary. We spend three weeks, which is barely, barely at all. Like we, we need three months to be even begin to get into any of this, really. Um, but it's a beautiful and wonderful chapter. But here at the start of Romans chapter 8, where God's law and our flesh, they're crashing together, or else they're, they're crashing against the Spirit, it seems. Just before our reading in verse 5, it doesn't sound so encouraging, or at least to my ear, it sounds, it sounds like a test that I don't pass. Hear these, hear these words, Romans chapter 8 and verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit 
is life and peace. And so let me pause for a second. And especially for those who have a tender conscience here this morning, let me speak to you clearly. Those who might be saying, well, I hear that, and I, I struggle with my, I, on the drive here, I struggled with my flesh, and I failed. I was, I was lashing out at my children, or whatever it is, I struggle with my flesh, and it feels like I fail every day. And so, at the beginning of this real encouraging chapter, I, I must not be in Christ Jesus, maybe you're thinking this morning. I must not be the elect as Paul will go on to say in Romans chapter 9. I must be separated from God because I fail. And I failed today and I failed yesterday. I must be a condemned one. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And now I hear this sort of distinction between flesh and the spirit. And I feel very fleshly here this morning. Is that you? Is it, do you feel that way sometimes? Hopefully less and less. Less than me, hopefully. This is where you might be at. And so we might, we might want to run back to Romans chapter 7 and commiserate with the Apostle Paul. I delight in the law of God in my inner being. I love the Mosaic law. I love the Holy Scripture in my inner being, but I see in my members. So he's talking about his hand and his head and his heart and all the parts of his body. I see in my members another law. So here's that second law that is waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So he just said this. Wretched man that I am. So if you, when you hear the distinction between um, the flesh and the spirit, and it makes you feel tender, you're with Paul. Okay, we're in the same place together. He's feeling the tenderness of his sin. He's feeling that. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And this is the question right at the end of Romans chapter 7. Who? Who will deliver me from the body of death? Who will deliver me from my pornography addiction? This, this addiction that I've been cultivating since I was a kid that has messed up my brain. I can't even think or act well anymore. Who will deliver me from the law of sin and death that is that has killed my desire, that's wasted my desire, that's made my marriage feel hopeless. Who? Who will deliver me from my sin-soaked self? All the stuff that I try to hide from that part of me that continues to wage war against the law of my mind, even among even among all of my broken and hidden parts deep down in me, I feel the desire to love the Lord God. I desire to, to love this law. Who will deliver me from all the other parts of me that are fighting against that? So just the question. I think a, a better way to ask this question, especially as we turn to Romans chapter 8, rather than who will deliver me, the, the, question, the question that Paul really fundamentally answers in Romans chapter 8 is who has delivered me? Who, it's, it's will, it's still will, so we're not fully delivered yet, but there's an already that's happening. Who has delivered me already? Who has set me free? So here at the pinnacle of the mountaintop of Paul's letter, where the law comes face to face with the Spirit, 
Paul sets the foundation for no condemnation. And this is the turn. So pay attention. This is the decisive shift, not just in this letter, but in the history of the world. This is a, the stakes are way higher than you and I can contemplate or imagine, not just in human history, but in my life. This, this is the ground of the reality of the gospel for us today, especially as we turn to the rest of this letter where Paul is going to talk a lot about living in the spirit, what it means to love the law of the Lord, to love in the rest of this letter. So here's, I'm going to return to the first two verses of our reading, verses 7 and 8. And this is a very bad translation, but I'm trying to help us understand this a little bit more. Verse 7, for the hostile to God flesh mind. Is that a subject for you? Okay. For the hostile to God flesh mind. That's you and I's. The law of sin and death, the hostile to mind, flesh mind, it won't submit to the law of God. It won't submit to the law of God as revealed in Holy Scripture or else the Mosaic law because, because this hostile to God flesh mind that I have is powerless, Paul says. It's powerless. Verse 8, those who exist in the age of the hostile to God flesh mind are powerless to please God. So why the weird translation? Why the weird translation? Verse 7, this verb, the verb in this sentence is not set your mind. That's a restatement of an earlier verb many sentences ago. The verb in this sentence is a passive verb. It's won't submit. So my mind, which seems to be, as Paul says in Romans chapter 7, it's, it's waging war against me. It's like it's uncontrollable to me. So Paul says it's the sin in Romans chapter 7 that is doing this to me. It's like he's out of control. Have you ever been there? Okay, so I'm going to call this a human passive. We're doing something that is insane. We're sinning and we're like, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this sinful thing? I'm going to call this the human passive, the thing that seems to be so uncontrollable in your life that you cannot seem to beat. You cannot seem to fight or have victory over. Those who exist, Paul says, in the old age, in the age before the coming of the Spirit, are powerless. He says this twice. They're powerless to do God's law. They're powerless to please God. So the pinnacle of Paul's letter, it isn't, and this is really important, it's, it isn't centrally about a competition or else a fair fight between my flesh and my spirit. So if you're, if you're feeling this war, that's not primarily, I think, what Paul is talking about here in this place. It's not a fight. This mountaintop where law and spirit meet, it's a remembrance of not a fight that's happening right now in our life. It's, it's the remembrance of a decisive victory that has already happened. Not, it's not about you and I's present fight. And we fight. We wage war against the flesh by the spirit right now. And there's other texts that talk about that. Yes. But this is Paul looking back upon. It wasn't a fair fight. 
and there was a decisive victory. A decisive victory, not who will free me from this body of death, it who has, who has set me free, who has saved me. This is the turning point in Paul's letter, theologically, but it's, it's the turning point of all of human history. Or else, this is the new age of the Spirit. This is Paul talking about the new covenant that is now complete. It is the end. It is the completion. It is the end goal. It's the telos of all of the story of the law and the prophets fulfilled in Christ. Let me show you verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So notice what Paul doesn't say. Paul doesn't say, for the gospel has set you free in Christ Jesus from God's law. He didn't say that. He didn't say, and he, he says this in other places. He makes hard distinctions between law and gospel. Earlier in this letter, he even does that. He certainly does that in his letter to the Galatians. But here, he's not pitting gospel against law. He says, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. This new law. Why does he say it like this? Why does he say it like this? Paul says that we are now not condemned because we have entered into a new age. It's a, it's a completely new thing that God is doing by the Spirit. This is the fulfillment of the new covenant that Jeremiah cries out to when, he, when he's looking forward to the new covenant where God's law is written on human hearts by the Spirit. This is Jeremiah chapter 31, Ezekiel chapter 36, and verse 27. I, God, will put my Spirit within you so that you walk in my statutes, in my law. But you observe my ordinances and keep them. So, this is not a test for you and I today, flesh, spirit. It's a reminder, hear this, it's a reminder that you are in a new age. A new age. And we're going to unpack the implications of this a little bit more this morning and definitely over the next couple of weeks. But you, Christian, are not powerless. You are not helpless any longer, the indwelling law of God, written by God on your heart, this is the hope of the prophets, his indwelling spirit within you who has set you free, who has set you free, has, past tense, set you free from your destructive desires and addictions, from your habits, those deeply ingrained law of sin and death that's in your members, it's all over you. He's given you strength and power. His powerful spirit is now within you. Pouring out grace and mercy and forgiveness every day in this new age. So that you can actually be obedient. It's hopeful. It's a hopeful turn. We live in this new hope-filled age of the law of the spirit of life. And we are no longer powerless. So this is a... This is not a test. How are you doing today, Christian? Is the spirit winning or the flesh winning? This is a reminder that we are in the age of the new heavens and the new earth breaking in because of what Christ has accomplished for us. Continuing in verse 3. For God, God has done 
hear this, has done. He's done it. What the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, or you could say for our sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. God has done. If you hear anything this morning, God has done. God has done. This is good news. God the Son took upon himself the fullness of humanity, and Paul's careful with his language, without sin. Without sin, he took upon our flesh, and he did this because of our wickedness, because of our rebellion, because of our sin, to set us free. To set us free, and this is, this is the cherry on the top of all of Romans chapter 7. And I would love to go back in time and preach that whole chapter for you, but let me just give you a little quick illustration of Romans chapter 7. Imagine the law of God was like a perfectly drawn circle. Has anybody tried to do that? Has anybody watched YouTube videos of how to do that? Okay, just me, whatever, okay. Um, you could do that, and there are people who draw some really, really good circles. So in a world full of squares and ovals, God showed us what a perfect circle looked like. This is my summary of Romans chapter 7. But the law of God, that perfect circle, could not help us draw a perfect circle for ourselves. It showed us what it looks like, but man, the law of sin and death that ruled in my flesh made my hand uncontrollably shaky so that even the best among us who, have, who don't have the shakes, nobody drinks coffee, you're, you're the perfect artist in the room, the best among us at drawing circles, when it's compared to the perfect circle, it still, still doesn't measure up. This is Romans chapter 7. It exposes us. The point of the law of God was never to get us to do it ourselves. It was never to show us how to do it ourselves, to count on God by faith. That was always the purpose. So what the law couldn't do, Paul says, weakened by our flesh, so the law of sin and death that reigns in our mortal bodies, God the Son did. He did it. He drew the perf perfect circle for us. He erased all of our lame attempts at drawing circles or acting like we can be the one who draws the circles for everyone else around us, or whatever it is that we fall prey to, he erased all of our sin, and our guilt, and our shame, and he redeemed us. God in Christ has done this for us, verse 4. In order that, Paul says, in order that, he has done this. He has redeemed us from the curse of the law, from this this tendency to want to perform and to earn it and do it ourselves in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, Paul could have said this. He could have said, God has done all of this, this gospel. He's done all of this in Christ for us. You can't do it yourself, Christian. He's done all of this for us. He could have said it like this, so that we, you and me, might fulfill the law. He very easily could have done that. God did this so that you and I might fulfill the law, but that's not what he said. 
God has set us free in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Not that you and I might fulfill it, that it might be fulfilled in us. And so here's one more way to highlight the old age of the flesh and the inaugurated new age of the spirit. Here's one way to highlight it. If, if the old age is a, is a human passive verb where we are so dominated by our sinful flesh that we, have, we are helpless, we're powerless to do anything, the new age in the spirit is what theologians call a, di- a divine passive. The verb here is God is clearly doing the action that the law might be fulfilled in us. It's not that we might fulfill the law. Even after he saved us, it is that he might fulfill it in us. He is doing the action. It's a completely different age. It's a completely different equation. Paul writes in the passive voice to make it clear that even those who now by the powerful spirit of God within us, even those who now walk, as he says later in that verse, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, even those who walk, and this is, our, this is where the mystery of our action is, it interplays with God's action on our behalf. It's God's action. Foundationally, fundamentally, from start to middle to end, it's God's action from start to finish that saves us. This is what the Spirit reminds us of. This is the new age of the Spirit. This is the Spirit of God the Father who testifies to us. This is the Spirit of the living Christ who is present with us, who, as we'll look at next week, who adopts us into the household of God. This is what he says over and over again. He is presently fulfilling, even as we are walking, even as we are existing In the spirit, existing in this new age, it is God who acts in us, fulfilling all righteousness. We are not hopeless. This is the new age of the spirit, of the new covenant in Christ's blood. We are not hopeless in Christ by the spirit. This is the peak of the gospel. This is why this chapter and the rest of it, as we unpack it over the next couple of weeks, is life-giving for our souls. We can rest. We can rest here. Rest from your labors. If it is up to us at any point, if it is up to our hostile-to-God flesh mind, we won't ever submit to God's law. We can't. We're powerless. We can't do it. But now, and not just in the future, hear this, but now, today, In the new covenant, in the new age of the spirit, where the law of the spirit of life is being written, it's transcribed on our hearts and in our minds, and we're invited to set our minds on the spirit. In this present age now, you are free. You, Christian, are empowered by God to be free, to live free, to not be enslaved. To rewire all of your broken neural pathways that lead you into foolishness all over the place. To heal all of the broken places in your individual lives, in your relationships, in your friendships. To 
to help you wake up so that you don't go deeply into that hole. You turn around by the power of the Spirit and you live free today. This is not our work, but God is inviting us to set, to set our minds, to to remember the reality of what God is doing by the Spirit, by His mercy and grace alone. He does, these, he does this inside of us, and He does it by His grace in the church outside of us. The whole church of God comes alongside us so that we can wage war against the flesh, against principalities and powers who cannot, they cannot separate us. Even yourself, you cannot separate Yourself from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. This is where we need to be. This is where we need to stay. And thank God we're going to get to do that for a little bit. So here, with this foundational principle in mind, hear these verses anew this morning. You, Christian, you are not in the flesh. You're not in that old age. You don't have to be a slave to your passions and your desires all the things that led you into every hole that you've fallen in every day of your whole life. You're not in the flesh, but you're in the spirit. Welcome to the new age. My kids like that song. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. This is not a test. This is not a test, Christian. Hear the age that you live in by faith. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, all of your dead members and memories and all the trauma and all the foolishness, if your body is dead because of sin, right now the spirit is life because of righteousness. Because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life. He'll give life to your mortal bodies. He will heal you. He'll heal your heart and mind and hands and soul and marriage and relationships. Your whole self. He'll heal you. He'll give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers and sisters... We are debtors, Paul says. We are debtors not to the flesh. Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you please stand? And let us confess our faith.